John chapter 12 is where we're headed this morning. John chapter 12, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses together today. Would you look at your copy of God's Word as I, as I read from mine? John chapter 12 and verse 1, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And we've seen it many times in our study of John's Gospel. We've seen this opposition. We see it again right at the end of our passage, this extreme opposition and hatred directed toward Christ. Not only are they opposed to Christ now, but now they, they have to be done with Lazarus, the one raised from the dead, because many people, because of his, no doubt, powerful witness, were believing in Christ. We saw it at the close of chapter 11, with this very clear evidence of, of the authenticating miracles of Christ right in front of them, verse 53 of chapter 11 tells us that they began making plans to put Jesus to death. With, with, the, with the glaring evidence right in front of them, with their own admission that this man is doing many signs, he is doing many miracles, we've got to be done with him. We've got to put him to death. The authorities reject Christ. They reject his message. And later it says they pass the word that Jesus is a wanted man. If you know where he is, you better tell us. It seems so amazing, I think, that with such clear evidence there would be so many people still who, who do not believe in Christ with such overwhelming positive evidence to point to who he is that there are still so many people who do not believe in Christ and who respond to him so negatively. But there's, there's another even more extreme example in this passage before us, the negative response to Christ. It's the example of Judas. You see it there, pointed to, as I read the passage this morning, Judas was one of the twelve disciples. But Judas never really believed in Christ. He was there with the others, no doubt. He traveled with them. He was there when Jesus taught. He heard the same teaching. He saw the same miracles. He heard the same explanations of the teaching of Christ. 
But never, never did he believe. Judas, we say the name kind of like, you know, that's not good, is it? Judas, right? We remember Judas, don't we? We can't forget Judas. Have you ever met anyone named Judas? See, parents don't name their sons after Judas. But we remember him, don't we? Thankfully, there's a different example in the same text here. There's, there's another name. There's another person that we remember. It's an example of love. There are several here in this passage, in fact, ex- several examples of love for Christ expressed by those who gather around him. There's one that stands out above the rest, isn't there? You saw it as I read it this morning. There's an example here of, of extravagant, unrestrained love for and heartfelt devotion to Christ. So not, not only does John's gospel give us a glimpse of the extreme examples of hatred, yes, but it also gives us wonderful examples of, of powerful, love-filled responses with, of, of love toward Christ. The example that we have in the text before us this morning is that of the love of Mary for her Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And her love for and devotion to Christ is very clearly seen here, isn't it? It's an extravagant act of worship that sets her apart from all those around her. Mary. We don't say the name Mary like we say the name Judas, do we? Mary. Also the name of Jesus' mother, yes? We love to hear the name Mary, don't, don't we? We like the name Mary. It's a sweet name. It's, it's a name many parents give to their daughters. Everyone remembers Mary for her extravagant act of worship. So what's the setting here? As we open chapter 12, the setting is one of celebration, isn't it? The disciples are gathering around Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We're also told that if we look at the other Gospels, the the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, we're told there that they are celebrating in the house of Simon the leper. Now we're not told this, but it's likely that Jesus had also healed Simon the leper. Otherwise, they would not have likely been meeting in his house. Those who had leprosy in that day were outcasts. There was no medical help for them. But we learn from those other accounts in Matthew and Mark that they're in the house of Simon the leper. And gathered in Simon's house with uh, Jesus would have been the disciples and Martha and Mary and Lazarus and likely Simon and maybe even a few others. And the word used in the original language, speaking of the meal that was served, the word in the the original language actually indicates the, the larger meal of the day, the main meal of the day. It would have been a time of more lengthy and casual conversation. It would have been likely the larger meal of the day. They would have had uh, been reclining at table. It says that they were reclining at table, and, and what that means is they would have been on, a, on kind of a long couch with their head and hands toward the table and their feet pointed away from the table. That was customary. And they're celebrating. But why are they celebrating? Well, they're celebrating for a very good reason, aren't they? They're celebrating because, well, Lazarus has been raised from the dead, hasn't he? (laughs) Lazarus has been raised from the dead. There's something to celebrate. 
They're celebrating for very good reason because Lazarus has been brought back to life. And he had not been brought back from a so-called, you know, near-death experience, right? We hear people say, I had a near-death experience. Lazarus didn't have a near-death experience. He had a total death experience, okay? And Jesus brought him back to life. Jesus had brought Lazarus, Lazarus out of the grave, body decaying in the grave for four days as it was, and gave him back to his sisters, Martha and Mary, who had grieved their loss. So it was very fitting that they celebrate this day, wasn't it? In fact, they are giving this dinner for Jesus. They're giving this dinner in Jesus' honor. They're honoring Jesus here. And verse 2 says, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Where's Martha? She's serving, of course. Where, where would you expect Martha to be, right? That's how we see Martha in the Gospels. We always find Martha serving. She's a faithful servant. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. She's a good example of seeing what needs to be done and doing it, right? Martha's serving, and here no less than elsewhere. She has likely gone all out this time to make and serve the best meal she can. She's serving Jesus. On that note, I think sometimes we think Martha's service was inappropriate. If we go to Luke chapter 10 and verses 41 and 42, we have the account where Martha is busy about the house serving and Mary. Where's Mary at that time? She's at Jesus' feet, right? Listening to his teaching. And what happens? Martha comes and says, Jesus, tell her to start working. She needs to help. Get her into the kitchen. What's she doing? Wasting her time sitting there listening to you. She didn't hear herself, did she? Listen to you teach. And so we look at that passage sometimes and we think, poor Martha, shame on Martha. She's just always working, working, working. Workaholic Martha. And I don't think she gets her credit sometimes. In verse 41 and 42 of Luke 10, it says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious, Jesus says. You're anxious and troubled about many things. That was Martha, right? Always anxious, always busy, always working. But one thing is necessary Mary has chosen the good portion, the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus wasn't going to send Mary away at that time. She was sitting at his feet listening to his teaching. He wasn't going to send her away. That was a good thing she was doing. She had chosen what was good, to sit at Jesus' feet, to listen to his words. But note that Jesus didn't say, he didn't say she had chosen the better thing. Have you ever noted that? Some translations actually use the word better. So if you've got that in your Bible, you, you might be led to think that she did choose the better thing. But, but actually, in the original language, the word is intended to mean good. Mary has chosen the good thing. Not the better thing necessarily, but the good thing. So we sometimes think Jesus is saying to Mary, well, you know, Mary, you, you chose the better thing, and Martha, not the, not the not so good thing. She's busy and worrisome. But there's nothing wrong with Martha serving, is there? There's nothing wrong with Martha fixing a, a wonderful meal for her Lord and Master Jesus Christ. She too has chosen what is good here. We see it in the passage before us this morning in John 12. There was nothing wrong with Martha serving. That too was good. But Jesus said to Mary that she had chosen the good portion. There was nothing wrong with what she was doing either. Yes? She was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. I... I 
I want to remind, remind myself here, remind you here that, that serving has its place, right? We need to serve. We must serve. God calls us to serve. Service is important. So is sitting at Jesus' feet, yes? So is sitting at the Master's feet, listening to His teaching. And here in John 12, we find the practical one, Martha, who sees what needs to be done and does it, serves the Lord in a way she thinks is best. We learn from Martha as well as Mary, don't we? We learn from them both. And just as Mary and Martha are different, you and I are different, right? We're all different. We have ways that God intends for us to serve, sometimes very different from the person who sits next to you. Serving certainly has its place. So does following closely Jesus' words. And I think that both should have their place in our lives. As we walk with Christ, we should serve, and we should listen to Christ. So there's Martha, seeing to the needs of Christ, fixing the meal, serving the meal. What about Lazarus? Well, he's at the table. Lazarus is at the table. The ladies are like, yeah, that's where the guys always find themselves, at the table. What did Lazarus do anyway? Anybody know what Lazarus did? I don't know what Lazarus did either. We don't, we're not told what Lazarus did. I don't know. In fact, Kent Hughes says Lazarus must have been Mary and Martha's younger brother because he didn't do anything. <laughs> Any older siblings feel like that? We don't know. We don't really know what Lazarus did. But here he is. He's sitting at the table. We don't see anything in the text that Lazarus did. And I, and I think in, in many ways probably it's important that he, he's not seen doing anything. It's not about Lazarus and what he did, is it? It's about what Christ did for Lazarus. You realize that? It's about what Christ did for Lazarus. And there's a lesson there for us. There were those who we see here who served Christ, but their salvation was not based on their works. Lazarus had done nothing to deserve being raised from the dead by Jesus. Jesus We've seen it as we studied chapter 11 together. Many reasons why Jesus delayed his going. He knew his disciples and those who followed him needed to see Lazarus raised from the dead so that they would be strengthened in their faith, yes? Jesus says, it's good that I was not there. It's good that I was not there so that you would grow in your faith, so you would be strengthened, so that you would believe. Oh, many reasons for Lazarus being raised from the dead, but it wasn't because he deserved to be raised from the dead. You realize that? And so to our own salvation. God saves you from your sin. He doesn't save you from your goodness. You realize that, right? You don't deserve to be saved. That's why it's called a sacrifice. God sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to be a sacrifice for your sinful soul. Lazarus didn't do anything. He didn't earn his being brought back to life. And I think it's probably a good thing we don't see him doing anything here. It's not that he didn't do anything. It's just that we aren't led astray by something he did to think that he deserved to be brought back. It was for his sister's sake that they might believe. It was for the disciples' sake. It was for those who would look to Lazarus and hear him say, Jesus brought me back to life. I was rotting in the grave and Jesus brought me back. Look at me. I don't smell so bad now, do I? And then, of course, there's Mary. 
Verse 3 says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary took a pound a, well, you know, not as not a, not a pound like we know a pound, but a pound for them was about twelve ounces. But still, that's a lot. Anybody put on twelve ounces of perfume this morning? You wouldn't be sitting here probably, and nobody would be sitting near you if you did. <clears throat> John tells us here that Mary poured this expensive perfume, twelve ounces, a pound, on Jesus' feet. Now, if you know Matthew's account, Matthew's account of this occasion tells us that Mary poured the ointment on Jesus' head. That's interesting, isn't it? Mark says the same as Matthew, but also points out that Mary broke an alabaster flask. The alabaster alabaster flask was probably not worthless. It was probably valued greatly also. She broke the alabaster flask. Flask, that's something you would do if you intended to use it all. It was no mistake what she did. This was intentional. Now, why does John point to Mary pouring this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet while Matthew and Mark show how Mary poured it on his head? (laughs) Well, I think it's likely that what John is doing is trying to emphasize Mary's humility. I mean, think of it. You, You break this jar, you pour the perfume, the ointment on Jesus' feet, but you don't stop there. You get down on your hands and knees and you take your hair and you drop, you lower your hair, drop your hair, and you wipe Jesus' feet? What a humble expression of love for Christ. Do you remember in the, in the gospel accounts when there were those beside Jesus who were looking around for someone to wash the feet? <laughs> it wasn't going to be one of the disciples. Who washed their feet? It was Jesus. Another act of humility. There's no discrepancy in the biblical account here. We might think there is, and, and there, but there isn't. You know, the, the, the gospel writers, some of them show things from different perspectives, and that's just as God intended it. There's no discrepancy in the biblical account, and that's what's so interesting, I think, about the biblical record, and it's especially clear here in the Gospels. God, think about it, God inspired the individual writers of each book. God inspired each author to write what God wanted them to write, but he allowed them to to recount what they wrote and write what they saw through their own eyes, through their own experience, through their own thinking. So God moved them in thought, depend the words he wanted them to use, but he allowed their experiences to flavor what they wrote. God inspired these individual writers to write just what they wrote, and he used their own eyes and their own ears and their own perspective to communicate the message that God intended. How wonderful is that? That God uses the personality of individuals to give us the biblical record. God did not remove the personality of the writers as he inspired them to write his word, and that's what we're seeing here. So there's no doubt here that all three accounts are accurate. All three accounts communicate just what God intended. And I think John points to the sacrificial, humble service of Mary 
toward her Lord and Master Jesus. I, I want you to think with me about this picture of this. Can you put yourselves there for a moment? <clears throat> the men are reclined at table eating. The ladies can picture that, right? Come on, guys. Isn't it about time to do dishes? The men are reclined at the table eating. Now, in that society, the women didn't eat with the men. Listen, don't get offended, ladies. That's just the way it was, all right? That's the way they did it. And guys, don't even think about trying this. <clears throat> but in that society, the women didn't eat with the men, all right? They stood around the edges and they served. Careful, gentlemen. The guys are going, oh, I like this. But that's just the way they did it in their society, right? In their culture. So picture this. Here are the men reclining at the table, eating, conversing, being served by those who are nearby, the ladies serving them, Martha. And in comes Mary. And Mary is, she's, can you imagine, she's so overcome with emotion at, at Jesus' presence, at the presence of her dear brother Lazarus, who had not long ago been dead and stinking in the grave, right? And in comes Mary, and overcome with emotion, she breaks this jar of expensive perfume and puts it on Jesus. Now, we, I, I still don't think we can understand how, how extravagant this is, how over the top this is. In her hands, she holds this expensive perfume, this expensive ointment. It's a very strong perfume. We're told here that it's an expensive ointment made from pure nard. Nard was from a, it was a fragrant oil that was extracted from the root of plants that were native only in the mountains of northern India. And so what made it so expensive was actually getting it there, transporting it, importing it. And what Mary used was pure nard, the, ex the most expensive. It wasn't like going to the dollar store and buying your favorite knockoff cologne, right, <clears throat> that nobody really likes. I mean, when they smell it on you, right? <laughs> This wasn't a knockoff. This was the pure stuff. This was pure nard, the most expensive. In fact, what Judas sees angers him. And we know why. We're told why. You know, not for the right reasons. But it angers him. And in fact, the other gospel writers tell us that the other disciples actually got angry also when they heard Judas push back at this expensive, extravagant act of love and worship, they, they too said, well, wait a minute, this isn't right. Verses 4 and 5 say, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, remember John kind of helps us remember, don't forget where, where Judas' heart is, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now Judas could have cared less about the poor. What he cared about was himself. But this pure nard was of value. It was expensive, 300 denarii. It was worth about a year's wages then. Can you imagine that? 
get, get an idea of what a year's wage is worth and, and, and get that in the form of a perfume and break it and pour it. And it says in verse 3 that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It was a powerful aroma. It was a powerful perfume. In, in fact, it was often used to embalm the body to cover up the odor of death. Now think of this. Why did Mary do this? Think of the devotion of Mary and how she was so fully devoted to Jesus. Think of the fact that she was just enjoying having her brother back from the dead. And she sees this work that Jesus performs, and it's on her behalf, on her sister's behalf, and, and she believes, and she is strengthened in her faith. There's another perspective to this. What a relief to have the one who was likely the breadwinner back, who would help provide for their needs. That was often the case in that culture also. The men provided for the needs of the families, and, and to have Lazarus gone would have been a great financial burden. Think, too, of the fact that Mary had, as often as possible, sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to him teach. And she had listened carefully. And she had heard, no doubt, on many occasions, him speak of his own impending death. And how does Mary respond? With emotion? Yes? I imagine she comes into the room with this expensive ointment and she is overcome with emotion and she goes to Jesus and she totally forgets herself. Think of that. She totally forgets where she is and who's there and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. She forgets herself. She's in the presence of Christ. She's in the presence of of her Lord and Master. And she performs this extravagant act of worship in breaking this bottle and pouring the perfume on Jesus. This extravagant act of worship and self-forgetfulness. And the way in which she gave it was also self-forgetful. Think about this. So Mary is kneeling. She, she would have had to have knelt down at Jesus' feet, an act of humility. She's kneeling at Jesus' feet, pouring the ointment on him, and she wipes his feet with her hair. She's kneeling here at Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair. How self-forgetful is this? Do you, you need to know this too, that in that culture for a, a woman who is of respect to lower her hair in the presence of men was something that was considered scandalous, even indecent, even immoral. But Mary totally forgets about that. She totally forgets. She takes no thought to the others watching and what they think. She worships her Lord and Master Jesus Christ in this way. She totally forgets herself. She totally forgets what others think about her in, in giving this gift, this love offering. And do you understand 
that this is just the kind of self-forgetfulness that God desires of his children today? Do you realize that? Do you realize that Jesus does not rebuke her? In fact, he rebukes who? He rebukes Judas and the disciples, right? Wait a minute. Leave her alone. You see, that's just what God wants of us today. Our unrestrained worship. Our self-forgetfulness in giving. We hear from John 4 just what God wants in those who who are his children. John 4, when speaking to the woman at the well, Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You see, God desires of his children that they be true worshipers of him, that we not put on any facade, that we not think about what others might think in our giving of whatever we have, whether it's our, our money, we tend to think of, of our money first. Whether it's the possessions with which we have been blessed by God. Whether it's our time. Whether it's our energy. Whether it's the talent that God has blessed us with. God wants a people who will worship Him from the fullness of their hearts, from the overflow of their lives, totally forgetting about themselves and forgetting about others and what they think. Mary gave willingly, didn't she? Mary gave extravagantly. There was no one there twisting her arm. I trust you give willingly also. I trust there's no one here who feels like their arm is being twisted when it's time to give. But when was the last time you were extravagant in how you gave of yourself? And I'm not just talking about money here. When was the last time you were extravagant in the way you gave of yourself in worship to God? Can you remember? It's hard, isn't it? I think for many of us it's very hard to remember. When was the last time I totally forgot about whether or not I could afford to give what I'm going to give? See, that's often what we do, isn't it? I'll give if, right? I'll give if. I'll give if I can fit it into my budget. I'll give because I don't need that, (laughs) right? Oh, I don't need it anymore. I'll give that. I always laugh. I don't want to offend anybody. I always laugh that often it's humorous to me because it's just the way we think sometimes. That when it comes to the church, the church often gets our leftovers. Now, years ago, I was a, I was a youth pastor, an assistant pastor at a church, and we, we were going to decorate the youth, the senior high room, with furniture. And I specifically asked people, I said, just give us your old stuff, okay? And there might, might be times that that's appropriate, Right? But why why do we think God deserves our leftovers? Maybe you're like me and you've heard of the folks who have saved used tea bags to send to missionaries. That's heartbreaking, right? 
Now be careful, because in the same way we might think about how we give... I see, I'm making you uncomfortable here, aren't I? This is uncomfortable, isn't it? When was the last time you gave to God of yourself in a way that was extravagant, even potentially painful? You see, we think giving in terms, we think of our giving in terms of, well, 10%. If I can budget 10%, and and that number we've used, you know, we we use that in the church often, but you realize that that 10% number, that, that comes from the Old Testament law. And you realize that God does not want you to be so restrained in your thinking that you could, you only give 10%. If I give 10, I'm okay. Or that you have to give 10%. Do you realize that? When it comes time to give of ourselves, what God wants is for us to forget about the amount. Forget about whether I can afford it or not. Forget about whether I'm physically able to do it. Is God leading you? Is, is, is your heart compelled to serve? Then serve, and God will help you. Is your heart compelled to give? Then give, and God will provide. Is your heart compelled because you're being obedient to God, and this is so important. We need to know God's word and follow his truth and trust in his word and, and know that we, we're being led by his spirit because God is so good to take his word and use it in our hearts by the power of his spirit alive in us. And so this is often why you will hear me occasionally, and I know that sometimes some of us might cringe when I say this, but sometimes when we give, I'll say, if your heart's not in it, don't give. Because God doesn't want you to give, well, it's time. I'll give, okay, it's time, I guess I'll give. God wants you to give without restraint. God wants you to give and forget about what others think. Yes, give of your resources, but give of yourself. When was the last time you looked and you saw a neighbor in need and said, I can't help him? Are you sure? When was the last time you saw an opportunity to serve and said, I can't do that? Are you sure? Because God provides. God gives strength. God gives wisdom. God encourages. God equips. When was the last time you were extravagant in the way you gave of yourself to God for His glory? And we ought not think this is only about money. Please don't hear me saying that this is only about money. It includes that. But it's not just about our finances. It's about our lives. It's about our time. It's about our energy. It's about giving of ourselves. When was the last time you jumped at a ministry opportunity without thinking first, I'm not sure I can do that. You know, sometimes we go, I don't think I can do that. When was the last time you trusted God to provide just what you need, just when you need it? See, so often, how we give to God is prefaced by, let's see, can I make that fit into this week's budget or this year's budget, or can I make it happen without without feeling it? You know, we often think of giving ourselves in service to Christ in terms of whether I can afford to give the time or whether I can afford to, to give of my physical energy. And sometimes our heart is just not there, and that's the bottom line, isn't it? 
And so maybe for some of us today, before we're, we're going to be able to give extravagantly to God, we need to deal with the Lord and let Him deal with us. Maybe we need to get in line with His Word and start practicing His truth and ask God to help us to have a generous heart, the kind of heart He has toward us, those undeserving sinners that we are. When was the last time you gave in service to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ an extravagant gift without thought for whether you could afford it or budget the time into your week or whether you could do it without any pain whatsoever or whether it would cost you time or energy? As we leave this place today, can we think about that? Are you challenged by that? I hope you are. I'm challenged by that. I stand here as a as your pastor, as one who is convicted deeply that often I don't know what it is to give extravagantly. Will you ask the Lord today to help you examine your heart? Will you ask the Lord today to give you a, a large heart that gives willingly and without respect to what others think of you? There's certainly more here for us to learn. Certainly more here for us to be grown in our faith to God. We'll come back to that tonight. But can you think about that today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I confess, Lord, that I am so selfish. Oh God, I pray. Give me a heart that loves. Give me a heart that desires to honor and glorify you without any thought to what others might think. God, I pray. Grow me. Stretch me. Convict me. Hey God, I pray, help. Help me. To become the, the kind of extravagant giver like Mary was that day. gives without any thought to what others might think, how they might ridicule her, who gives without any thought to whether or not she could afford it. God, I pray for your people today. Help us. Grow us, Lord, in faithfulness to you, in obedience to you, Draw us to your truth. Help us to hunger and thirst for your word in our lives that we might be obedient more and more each day. And God, as you grow us, help us to take huge steps of of obedience, not little baby steps. God, help us to be obedient to you in great ways that bring great glory and honor to you. God, help us to learn to be extravagant givers. 
givers of ourselves, givers of our time, givers of the resources with which you've blessed us. God, help us to remember you promised to provide to provide all of our needs. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.